To binge all episodes of The Killing Month, August 1978, join Wondery Plus and enjoy ad-free listening to over 40,000 episodes, early access to your favorite podcasts, and more. Find Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This episode contains descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. This is the incident that woke up America to the fact that if it could happen in a small town, it could happen anywhere. That's my father, William Lamb. Are we ready? You ready? We're ready to rock and roll. He goes by Bill. I can't call you Bill. That would be strange. To me, he's just dad. The incident he's referring to it sounds a little bit like the ambush of two teenagers in Chester County in August 1978 that I told you about in the last episode. But he's actually referring to a different brazen attack, an earlier tragedy that my father would later see as a dark precursor to the brutal murders of August 1978. In 1972, my dad, Bill, was 31 years old and the newly elected district attorney of Chester County, Pennsylvania, about an hour west of Philadelphia. In Philly, the murder rate was at an all-time high. But Chester County was a different story. Back in 72, small police departments like the Kennett Square PD were staffed by just a handful of officers, even some part-time officers. It wasn't a place where people got murdered. I mean, I don't think Kennett Square had had a homicide in years before Davis and Posey. On November 15th, 1972, I guess about 2 o'clock in the morning, 2.05, as the Kennett Square police car pulled into uh, the police station, directly across the street lay an assassin with a high-powered rifle. And he shot two cops. That's Charlie Zagorski, former Chief Chester County Detective, talking at a panel discussion several years ago about the Johnstons and the long-lasting impact they had on the community. In 1972, Charlie was working for the Pennsylvania State Police. At the time of the murder, I lived in Kennedy Square. I was called to go to the scene. When I got up there, I saw the bodies on top of one another. And you were scared to death that one of those was your brother, Frank. That's my dad interjecting, recounting his memories. Charlie Zagorski's brother, Frank, was also a police officer in Kennett Square. He was supposed to be working that night, but had switched shifts with 38-year-old officer Richard Posey. So, Frank Zagorski was not one of the men killed. Instead, Posey and 27-year-old officer William Davis died in the shooting. We immediately began one of the most intense investigations this county ever saw. From the obvious emotion in Charlie's voice, those officers might as well have been his brothers. And in a way, 
They were. I'm sure any of you that were alive when JFK was killed remember where you were. Let me tell you, I remember sitting on the side of my bed, putting my socks on, shaking after getting the call that my two friends had been murdered, had been shot in the back, ambushed at Kent Square. That's former state police detective Tom Cloud. You'd have to be professional, and believe me, we were. But they were our friends. Tom said most nights, the 25 communities in the county were covered by one Pennsylvania state police car out of Avondale. And they acted as backup for all these small police departments. So all these officers, they knew each other well. And let me tell you something. When you're out there, you take care of each other. They were our backup. Anybody that was in Avondale knows that when you work midnight shift, your friends, your only real friends in the world, were in Kennett Square and in Oxford because there was nobody else. And so that night, as I pulled my socks on, I remember, and I can tell you this day, before that, I hate to use this term because I've already tried to say that I was professional. But before that, it was almost like it was a game. It was almost um, volunteer firemanship, or, or I don't know what, what you would call it, but it became real. As quickly as things became real, they also became focused, focused on who might have committed such a crime. My dad was quoted at the time saying, this was a brutal assassination type killing. No casual type of killing. A planned, deliberate attack. The work of a cool assassin. Later in this episode, who killed officers Davis and Posey and how the murders foreshadowed what happened in August 1978. But first, how the Johnstons became the Johnstons. I'm Amanda Lamb. From WREL Studios, this is The Killing Month, August 1978. The story of a family crime empire that came crumbling down when the bodies started piling up. In 1931, a 17-year-old named Louise left her home in northwestern North Carolina to come to Pennsylvania to live with her pregnant sister. Eventually, she met Passmore Johnston, a Quaker from Swarthmore, Pennsylvania, who was decades older than her, and they married. According to reporting by Julia Cass with the Philadelphia Inquirer, Passmore was described as hardworking and quiet. The couple moved to Chester County, where Passmore got work on a farm in a greenhouse. They were raising six children, Jack, Mary, Bruce, Passmore Jr., David, and Norman. Passmore Sr. died in 1961, 
and Louise married a man who worked on the farm named Rivera. They had three more children. I came across some kind of a report from some child welfare thing when Bruce Sr. started to get in trouble as a delinquent. And they described his family upbringing as being completely, how could I put this, you know, a kind of anarchy. Reporter Julia Cass wrote that the family that now had nine children total was investigated by social services in the 1960s. The agency report described Louise as unreliable and unstable. And it went on to say the children lived a life of poverty and deprivation, often going without food, clothing, or any form of supervision. The family moved constantly, according to the report. And Bruce, who would grow up to become Bruce Sr., leader of the Johnston gang, didn't have a chance to attend school for long. He made poor progress and was placed in a special education program. In this family, which seemed to alienate itself from almost everyone, family solidarity provided the central bond. That's Julia reading from her own article about the Johnstons in the late 70s. Bruce Sr. left school after the seventh grade. Several years later, he married 15-year-old Jenny Steffi from Elkton, Maryland. She was pregnant with Bruce Jr. at the time. Bruce Sr. now had a family to support. According to Cass, Bruce Sr. followed his older brother Jack into petty crimes. He stole candy, ice cream, tires, gas. An attempted break-in at a restaurant landed Bruce Sr. an 18-month stint in a juvenile detention facility in 1959. While Bruce Sr. was incarcerated, Jenny met another man and had another child. She named James Johnston. Jimmy, as he would be called, was technically Bruce Sr.'s stepson since Jenny and Sr. were still married at the time. Even though they shared a last name, Sr. and Jimmy never shared a home. Jenny and Sr.'s marriage ended after he was released from prison. And when it came to the rest of the family, some of the other Johnston brothers soon followed Bruce into committing crimes. To a degree, it was the bond between brothers that got them in trouble, as each brother, in succession, pulled the next younger one into delinquency. But as the boys grew older, Julia wrote, their paths diverged. Jack became a mechanic. Passmore Jr. worked for a florist and then a compost company. Bruce Sr., David, and Norman, though, they kept on stealing. Neighbors divided them into the good Johnstons and the bad Johnstons. Bruce Sr., David, and Norman saw crime as their way out of the poverty they had been raised in. As soon as the money started rolling in, investigators said Louise was in favor of her son's chosen career paths. Many of the meetings revolving around the gang's criminal activities took place at Louise's kitchen table in her Kennett Square home. When Louise's sons got arrested, she always showed up at court with fresh $100 bills. She was ready to bail them out. 
The investigative team often referred to her as Ma Barker, after the notorious Arizona woman who ran a crime gang with her sons in the first part of the 20th century, later immortalized in several films. If Bruce was the CEO of the gang, Louise was the chairman of the board. She was one tough cookie. And I heard plenty of stories about how she would store their guns for them in the trunk of her car. There were family dinners and picnics in which they would divvy up burglary proceeds and have fried chicken. Ma Barker type. She always denied that, by the way. They were her boys. Nothing was going to stand between her boys and her. You know, it was the family. Not unlike the Godfather. That's my dad, Bill Lamb. And before that, former assistant U.S. attorney, Doug Richardson. The brothers shared their royalties with Louise. And in return, she carefully guarded their empire and their secrets. When you look at photos of the Johnstons, they look like brothers. They're all white guys with brown shaggy hair and sideburns in the style of the 1970s. They all have wide noses and deep brown almond-shaped eyes set apart. And they possess a kind of swagger that's evident even in still photos. But there were also differences in their appearances. Bruce Sr., the oldest of the three, was a little more grizzled-looking than his brothers, with the beginnings of a receding hairline and a Cheshire cat grin. Norman always had a little bit of a deer-in-the-headlights look, and David often sported a mustache and a floppy pompadour that sometimes obscured his face. But still, it was clear they were brothers. Even with their similarities, their roles in the family couldn't have been more different. Bruce Sr. was known to be in charge. Then there was Norman. Here's how reporter and author Bruce Mowdy remembers him. Norman was the youngest brother. I've heard say he was a little bit of a goof. He was kind of the follow-along, tag-along, what his big brothers does. And then there was David. A lot of people thought David Johnson was the smartest, and frankly, I think he was also the deadliest. There's one story about Bruce Sr. and David having a legitimate job for a short period of time. The owner told me this, the manager, and he said he asked uh, Bruce Sr. one day, why doesn't David look me in the eye when he talks to me? And Bruce Sr.'s response was, he doesn't want to get to know you in case he has to kill you. After the break, how these most brazen of criminals elude conviction and grow their empire.
Did you know that your unused medications could end up in the wrong hands? It's important to keep your medications secure in a locked location, such as a locking box or locking cabinet. When it's time to dispose of them, safety and properly dispose of old, expired, or unused meds by using an at-home disposal product or a medication disposal box in your community. Don't miss out on medication take-back events happening near you. Don't let anyone take what's yours. Lock your meds. Be aware. Don't share. Learn more at lockyourmeds.org nc. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The members of the Johnston gang weren't your typical criminals. They dabbled in many areas. Philadelphia Inquirer reporter Julia Cass called them a, quote, loosely organized rural underworld, end quote. First, there was the farm equipment. This is not your garden variety Saturday afternoon ride your tractor around your one acre plot of ground. These are big tractors. They were also master car thieves, burglars, and safe crackers. They'd steal anything of value, according to investigators. This included more than $20,000 worth of cigarettes from the Mackey Vending Company. $48,000 in cash from the safe at a popular local tourist destination, Longwood Gardens, and $13,000 worth of sporting equipment and clothing from a country club. Norman was once picked up for speeding while wearing a golf shirt with the country club's emblem on it. According to Cass's reporting, the police then got a warrant and recovered some of the goods from Norman's apartment. But... The warrant was later declared invalid, and the charges were dropped. They also stole art and antiques out of the homes of wealthy families who had left the city and built mansions in the beautiful rolling green landscapes of Chester County. Cass wrote they would fence the stolen items through the, quote, country crimes old boy network, end quote. And no one was talking to authorities because everyone was getting rich. I always thought it was a loose gang, about 25, 30 people. Bruce Mowdy, who was a reporter at the Daily Local News in Chester County, covered the Johnston's criminal activities starting in the mid-70s. And they all had some type of specialty. You know, David Johnston knew how to steal a car. They had lookouts. They had people who would give them tips about antiques, what to steal, what house had them. I think they were well organized to that point that they knew what to do, how to do it, and how to minimize responsibility. If every person was part of the crime, then no one was talking. It was that simple. Even people who bought the stolen items didn't talk when they would get duped by the gang which happened on a regular basis, according to investigators. They would steal a garden tractor from somebody, sell it on to somebody, and then steal it from that person. 
knowing that that person wouldn't go to the police because they had bought it knowing it was hot. So there was an enormous repetition and rollover. Doug Richardson was the young assistant U.S. attorney who eventually went after the Johnstons for interstate trafficking of stolen goods. So they're getting all this money, and all of the fencing, by the way, happens in cash. Nobody writes checks. Nobody wires money offshore. These are all cash transactions. And the question is, well, what do they do with the cash? You can't put it in the bank. You can't have a savings account. What do you do? And so they just always had walking around money, and they spent almost as fast as they stole. Amazingly, the Johnsons didn't have a lot to show for their vast wealth. They lived in modest homes and rarely traveled for pleasure. Mostly, they spent their money eating out, drinking, and on women. They had a thing for nice watches and buying their women diamond jewelry. And of course, cars. Fancy cars. The sports cars, fast cars, new cars, stolen cars, mostly Corvettes. These were the things that caught the attention of the local police. With their diverse criminal enterprises, the Johnstons eventually had a massive operation that netted more than a million dollars worth of proceeds by 1978, according to investigators and prosecutors. That equals about $4.5 million today. Not bad for a ragtag group of country thieves, but there's really no way to know exactly how much money they made. Chances are the total could be much higher. While members of the Johnston gang were getting rich, committing crimes, other members of the same community were headed in a very different direction. In the early 1970s, Tom Cloud was a young man looking for a purpose in life. He cared about people and wanted to do something important to help others. He just didn't know exactly what that something was. But then... I was helping... A cousin moved, and a mutual friend of ours had just gone through the state police academy. I had worked on a farm. My family was all in construction. Never really thought about it at all. But he told me about it, and uh, it just seemed like a, uh, I don't like to use this word, but it seemed like a righteous thing to do, something where you could help people. You could make some right choices. Tom graduated from the police academy in 1971 and was assigned as a patrol officer to the state police barracks in Avondale, Pennsylvania. When I got to Avondale, the first day I was told about the Johnsons. They were known as being involved in a lot of big burglaries, safe burglaries, uh, all types of thefts, and uh, they were considered to be probably dangerous. One of the associates of the Johnston brothers was Ansel Ham. He was from another local crime family, and he had been connected to the Johnston gang since the 1960s. Tom grew up going to school with Ansel Ham, and Ham was even on Tom's school bus route. Tom reminisced during that Johnston gang panel discussion about investigating a safe burglary from his early days, tangling with the Johnston gang. The burglary was in a really muddy spot, and Tom got the idea to see if he could track down where the gang was and catch them with muddy tires. 
And so I said, I know what I'll do. I'm going to drive over to Mill Road because I remember where the bus used to stop and Ansel Ham lived. Ansel Ham was there with David Johnston standing next to a dripping wet car that looked like it had just been washed. That's just how it went with the gang. It always seemed like they were one step ahead. Tom remembers hearing from other police officers that the Johnstons always seemed to fly beneath the radar, that they would get caught for stealing or committing other minor crimes, and their lawyers would get them off. Somehow, none of the cases against them ever seemed to stick. It was like the rules simply didn't apply to them. There was a certain belief that once the arrest was made, it was kind of a completion of a case. In other words, you got the evidence, you had enough probable cause to arrest somebody, you arrested them, and for the normal person being arrested, you know, kind of pops their bubble, you know, brings them back to reality, they get exposed, it gets in the newspaper, they've been arrested for, you know, theft or DUI or whatever the case is, and that means something. But with the Johnsons, that was almost a badge of honor uh, because they were trying to establish, and I say the Johnsons, Johnsons and Ham, they were trying to establish themselves as in control. Getting arrested was almost a cost of, of the business, but keeping their freedom was what it was all about. Not being able to convict the Johnstons weighed heavily on the investigators. At a certain point, Julia Cass reported that it was embarrassing for the police because they couldn't get any charges to stick on these guys. She described how one officer stopped going to a local restaurant because he'd get laughed at by other patrons. It was sort of impunity. There were so many cases when they would be charged and often like a search warrant would be declared invalid or something or improperly done. And you almost have to wonder if there weren't some crooked people in the justice system too, but that was never established. And they stayed out of jail. They, they, if they got charged, they got good lawyers and they were able to kind of uh, fly beneath the radar, I guess. Well, they, they w- were flying above the radar, but nobody could convict them. And it may have been the quality of their lawyers, but more likely it was the quality of the intimidation that they did on possible witnesses. And Doug Richardson wasn't the only one who noticed this pattern. Soon after reporter Bruce Mowdy started looking into the Johnsons' exploits, he heard about their reputation for making cases go away by hiring the best lawyers and also by threatening witnesses. He remembers a farmer who'd had his tractor stolen. The Johnsons were arrested for this. There was a preliminary hearing scheduled. In the morning, he went to go to the hearing. He opened up the truck door, and there was a stick of dynamite on his seat. That's a clear indication you better not testify against the Johnstons. In his book, Jailing the Johnston Gang, Bruce Mowdy wrote about how the gang was also suspected of putting dynamite in people's mailboxes to intimidate them and of burning down a barn in one instance to scare witnesses. They weren't above threatening investigators either. Police officers said when they arrested members of the gang, the Johnstons would often taunt them, telling them they knew where they lived 
and sharing things they knew about the officers' families. There was even a district justice in the southern part of Chester County who said he would never, ever find the Johnstons guilty of anything. He would conduct preliminary hearings, and if there's enough evidence, send them to county court for, for a major trial. But he himself would not find them guilty because he was afraid of them. I'm a crime reporter, and hearing that a judge is afraid to convict someone because of what they might do in retaliation, that's pretty shocking. Sure, no one is immune from intimidation, but in my experience, judges are sworn to uphold the law, to seek justice, and they don't back down. But somehow, the Johnstons had the power to muzzle one of these stalwart defenders of justice in Chester County. This was real power and they knew how to wield it. Coming up, the assassination of the two police officers causes a massive response from investigators countywide, and justice would be served, but maybe not for all. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I was the youngest DA ever elected in Pennsylvania. That's my dad again the former DA of Chester County. Remember, I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that he was just 31 when he was sworn in in January of 1972. And it's worth noting that at the time, it was a part-time job. He was still working for a law firm a couple blocks away from the DA's office. Basically, he had a young family and he was trying to pay the bills. But his new position as DA... This stoked his fire like nothing else he had ever done. He was determined to do a good job. When I took over as DA, I initiated a couple of practices that had never been done before. One of which was, if there's a homicide, I want, I want to be notified immediately, and I want an assistant DA on the scene of the homicide and of the autopsy. And then my dad got the call. On November 15, 1972, from an investigator at a shooting scene. Told me the two police officers had been gunned down, ambushed in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. And I needed to get an assistant DA on the scene. And I said, no, 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 for this, I will be there. So I quickly got dressed. And off I went to the Kennett Square Police Department. I had all the toots and whistles in my car. I had a siren. Got there probably in record time. I remember almost skidding off the road because it was a wet, rainy night. So I got there over the early morning hours, and I spent the next three days there. We slept on the floor, and people had brought in blankets and 
you know, blow up mattresses and all that kind of stuff. How quickly did the names of members of the Johnston gang come up? Immediately. Just as the community was small, the group of criminals in that community were small also. And you had the Johnston brothers, you had Ansel Ham, and you had a few others that were immediately brought into focus in terms of possibilities of being responsible. Chief Chester County Detective Charlie Zagorski knew Ansel Ham as a bad guy. And right away, Charlie realized that Ham lived not far from the crime scene. He decided that time was of the essence. The faster they started searching for evidence, the less chance it might be hidden or destroyed. Here's how my dad remembers it. Ansel Ham lived in a trailer behind the woods. And uh, Charlie Zagorski said, look, I want to initiate a search from the police department down to Ansel Ham's trailer. And, and you had to go through a cemetery, cross Route 1. We must have had 60 police officers and volunteers. And we got to U.S. Route 1. We had to go over it, and there's a creek running on the uh, south side. And you, we could see that somebody had splashed through it. We got up on, on the hill up there, and there was an old Ford vehicle that was junked just sitting there. Then Charlie and State Trooper Gabe Bola saw something else, parts of a rifle on the ground in the field next to the car. He says, Charlie, he says, I know that gun. You know that gun. Gabe Bola recognized the rifle because he remembered confiscating it along with other weapons from Ansel Ham's house several years prior. The guns had eventually been returned to Ham but there was a log of the serial numbers in the state police files. And you got to visualize that the rifle was in one place and he had tried to bend the rifle so that you couldn't do ballistics on it, smashed it on a rock to bend the, uh, the barrel and then started throwing pieces of it. Uh, the sling, the bolt, the uh, sight cover in a radius maybe of 40, 50 feet, as far as you could throw something like that. Despite the efforts to alter the gun, investigators could do ballistic tests, and the results were a match for the bullets. There were different possibilities for the motive. Charlie speculated that because Officer Davis would stop the gang members routinely, he was a liability to them. When I spoke to my dad, he mentioned that Officer Posey was a chief witness for an assault charge on Ham. And so he was, hello, getting rid of his witnesses. You know, it's one of those things where the crime is so outrageous and who did it and why he did it was so minor that the two just didn't connect you know this isn't two cops getting killed in the midst of a bank robbery or a shootout at the okay corral you know this is two police officers getting killed because some guy by the name of ansel ham had a grudge with one of them and the way he took care of it was to kill him
just didn't compute. Ham was tried and convicted for the officer's murders in March of 1974. He was found guilty and was given two consecutive life sentences. Today, 78-year-old Ham is serving his time at a state prison in Pennsylvania. This case and this conviction was the first time anyone associated with the Johnston gang was convicted of murder. But the Johnstons themselves came out of it without even being charged. While investigators suspected that one or more of the Johnstons was involved, they just couldn't prove it. Reporter Bruce Mowdy interviewed Roy Myers, a former gang member who married into the Johnston family. Myers had been in charge of cutting up stolen cars for the gang, but he was no killer. He told Mowdy that Bruce Sr. was driving the getaway car the night of the cop killings and that David was next to Ansel Ham when the fatal shots were fired. So I had second hand, but, but pretty close. And I've had a lot of other people over years say, yeah, they really suspected that uh, two Johnson brothers were involved with it also. There was one good thing that came out of the tragedy, unprecedented coordination between law enforcement agencies. Here's Charlie Zagorski from a 1979 interview with reporter Bruce Mowdy. It's a little hard to hear. It was just intended for Bruce's notes. Killing the police officers. The killing of the two uh, policemen in Kennett Square. Uh, it was an investigation that uh, involved an awful lot of uh, a, lot, a lot of police officers and a lot of agencies. And it, uh, it was a classic type investigation in respect that there was total cooperation. It's easy to understand why uh, members of law enforcement, uh, you know, band together, so to speak, through all their efforts in there, members of their own fraternity, you know, uh, were victims. It was an emotional case. It was a case that forever undermined the feeling of safety for officers in Chester County. They now had targets on their backs when it came to the Johnstons. And the 1972 police murders would lay the foundation for what was to come. A storm brewing between the police and the Johnstons. The more the gang got away with, the more frustrating it was for investigators who knew the brothers were continuing to build their crime empire with relative impunity. And it would all come to a head in August 1978, with a spree of criminality and a trail of victims that people still can't comprehend. But one year before that single month of mayhem, there was another murder that would eventually change everything for the gang. The murder of a Johnston gang associate who was shot, thrown in a hole, and buried while he was still breathing. He had dirt under his fingernails, like he had tried to dig his way out. Next time, the one murder to eventually unravel them all. I'm Amanda Lamb, and this 
is the killing month, August 1978. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.